Good morning, church. And a happy Mother's Day to all the mothers among us. And motherhood is held very highly, of course, in Scripture. And I can't help but think of the Apostle Paul, uh, a very manly man, who nonetheless said when he wrote uh, to the church of Thessalonica that he and those who were with him cared for the believers there with tenderness like a nursing mother would for those in the flock. Uh, So I hope you all have a wonderful Mother's Day and are held in high esteem by your loved ones. Well, our passage today is going to be in Psalm 24, if you have a notice in the bulletin, and you can turn there. But, you know, uh, first I want to share a story. And so I know the second hand, this story second hand, of a Jewish girl raised in a Jewish home, not a particularly orthodox home, because uh, one thing that was unique about her family, her parents had this Johnny Mathis Christmas album in their home. Now, this is already some giggles because this is going back, and maybe half of you don't even know who Johnny Mathis is. And just to give you an idea, um, I'm 51, and he was a favorite of my mother. So it's going back a couple generations. But he had this Christmas album back in the 60s, I believe it was. And one of the songs on there was Old Holy Night. And this Jewish girl raised in a Jewish home, not a Christian home, loved to listen to that album, and especially that song. She would put it on, and she would sing to it. And when it came around, if you remember, the first line of the common refrain is, fall on your knees, right? And she would do that. She would act it out. She would fall on her knees. Well, maybe a couple of decades later, when she became an adult, uh, by God's grace, she became a believer, And she came to the Lord Jesus Christ, and she reflected upon that and was able to see that even then as a little girl, with no gospel witness in her home, really, she was nonetheless already being prepared to worship God, to come before him, to fall down before him and sing his praise. And I can't help but think that in many ways, the entirety of our lives as Christians, while our worship, we are commanded to worship now and our worship is real, is nonetheless a certain element of it is preparation for a day when we will worship God in a way that we, above and beyond even what we can imagine now. Listen to this. One, in Revelation 19, uh, verses 6 through 8, we read of this scene at Christ's return. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So again, while we worship now and our worship is real and it is beautiful, it should be from the heart. Nonetheless, our worship now is in many ways a training for the life and age to come and the worship that we will offer to our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ then. So our passage today in Psalm 24, in many ways, I think, helps us to prepare to worship God aright. It's useful now, and of course, again, it is a training for later. It's a reminder that, as Paul wrote to the Romans, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, we have the hope that one day we will be in God's very presence, offering him worship 
again, beyond what we can even experience now. So let's read Psalm 24, and then we will begin. This is a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now, Psalm 24 in its original setting and purpose for which it was written, was a liturgical hymn uh, written to celebrate uh, the entrance of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem along with the victorious Israelite army. Uh, but as we have seen with much of the Psalms uh, already, as we've gone through our we're what fifth sermon into a 20-sermon series on the Psalms, into his presence, this psalm is in many ways prophetic, pointing to a greater fulfillment by the King of Glory, the Messiah, the Son of David. The Ark of the Covenant in the, in the Tabernacle Temple has given way to the one who is Emmanuel, who is God with us, the one who has tabernacled with us in his person. Now Psalm 24 divides quite naturally into three main sections, and your Bible may help you see this uh, if you weren't able to discern it on your own because it creates greater space. It basically treats it as paragraphs. The first section is the first two verses, and then we have a second section, verses 3 through 6, and then the final section, verses 7 through 10. And then the spirit of the third section of this psalm, which has a question and answer format, which we'll get to uh, when we get there, we will ask a question for each section. I will offer a question, and then we will see the answer, what we would call the indicative, the truth claim that is provided by the psalm to answer that question, and then draw an imperative, a command from that answer. That is what we call the indicative. It is what is imperative upon us to do and to believe and to worship. So, the first section, again, Psalm 1, excuse me, Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The question to ask is, who is God? And the answer here is, God is our creator. And therefore, we must worship God in spirit and in truth. In the second section, verses 3 through 6, who are God's people? God's people are those who love him, we see here. And we must worship God, therefore, from our hearts. In the third section... Verses 7 through 10, why do God's people worship him? There's a question. Because God's people have been saved, they have been delivered, and therefore we must worship God with 
praise. And we'll repeat these as we go through. Uh, so again, we will do this immediately with the first two verses in Psalm 24 here. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who is our God? God is our creator. And we must worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, there is continual parallelism in this psalm as there is, which is typical of Hebrew poetry and typical in the psalms and other places, including Proverbs and others. And we see this right away in, verses, in verse 1 and in verse 2. In verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and the world and those who dwell therein. Uh, the earth and the world and the, Lord, the fullness thereof and those who dwell in are parallels. Uh, and in verse 2, for he has founded it upon the seas, founded upon the seas and established upon the rivers. Uh, see, the true knowledge of God, that he is the creator, which is taught here, is really kind of theology 101. Uh, you know, we just had, Alan just taught so well a class downstairs, a membership class, we call it Road 101. Why? Because it's like the ground floor, right? It's the basics. I think this comes from uh, college classes. Uh, I don't remember what my freshman first semester English class was, but it was probably English 101, and that's the idea. This is kind of theology 101, the basics that God is the creator. Everything belongs to the Lord, and therefore, he is to be worshiped, because we are creatures. Verses 1 and 2 draw on Genesis 1 and the creation account, of course. And note there in Genesis 1, if you recall, that God speaks creation into existence, we, God said, God said, we were over and over. This is verbal. This prefigures how God will reveal himself through language, through the Bible, and how God's people will return to him worship in the form of verbal praise. Verse 2 makes a specific allusion to Genesis 1-9 and the forming of the land out of the sea. God pushing the seas to one place and forming land, land and earth being the same Hebrew word. So God not only created the world, but also those who dwell therein. God is the creator and must be acknowledged and worshipped as such. This is kind of uh, worship 101, if you will. And this is where the natural man completely fails. We read in Romans chapter 1, Verses eight, beginning with verse 18, that this is where the natural man has failed. He does not acknowledge his creator. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Though they knew God, though God had revealed himself, God had created the world. He had created humanity. He had given them all 
intelligence. He had given them all a mind to recognize who he was, and yet they rejected him. They took that knowledge and suppressed it due to an evil heart and instead worshiped the creation, not the creator. This is still a problem today, as you well know. In fact, our society is more and more going toward worship of created things. See, we're all worshipers. We all worship something. We're born to, we're born to worship. We're created to worship. If we reject the worship of God, then we turn to the worship of created things. Yeah. This is the problem today, and this was the problem in, uh, Paul, in Paul's time, in the time of the New Testament. And Paul addressed this problem in, uh, when he went to Athens in Acts 17. And notice that how he begins. He will want to share the gospel with those who do not believe. Uh, in fact, he goes to the city and he is grieved because there's idols everywhere. So he goes to Mars Hill of the Europagus, and there he wants to share the gospel. Uh, and he finds the avenue because there's an altar there that says to an unknown god. Right? They had all kinds of gods. They were polytheists, and they were worried that, well, maybe we had forgotten one god. You know? We don't want to offend that god, so we'll make an altar to the unknown god. And Paul uses that avenue to share the gospel with the Athenians. And where does he go? He goes immediately right back to creation and appeals to what, again, should be their knowledge that God is the creator and they are creatures. We read in Acts 17, beginning with verse 24. Here's what Paul says. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own po poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. This is a perennial problem, a rejection of the creator uh, for created things. And we must teach the truth that God is a creator. See, God does not accept worship from those who are ignorant of him. Uh, and again, this is theology 101. This is the problem uh, in our day uh, that people uh, have rejected the creator so they do not identify themselves and understand that they are creatures who have been made by God to be a certain way. So it's up to us. We can just invent whatever we want to be. That is a, um, a blatant rebellion against God and against the Creator. Uh, we need to appeal uh, to the fact that God is the Creator and demand worship, uh, command worship according to the knowledge of God as the Creator. See, we cannot worship God in ignorance, as Paul, or, excuse me, Jesus told the woman. Uh, the, Samaritan, the, the Samaritan woman at the well, excuse me, uh, he said that we worship what we know, but you don't worship what you know. You worship in ignorance. But the, the day is coming when, and is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit 
and in truth. Know in all of this, again, who is God? Uh, Know that doctrine matters, and it starts with God as the creator of all things. He is God. But of course, it doesn't end there. The truth of God is an unfathomable depth to be explored. It should be a continual learning process throughout our Christian life. And so, are we growing in our understanding of who God is? Of what it means that he is our creator? Of what it means that he is our redeemer? Of who he is in his person? What have we learned about God this year, this week, today? Every day should be a learning process in God, of who God is. And it isn't just uh, intellectual, though that is certainly part of it. Uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 139, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! We should long to know God's thoughts and to think as best we can as creatures, thoughts after God. But the true knowledge of God, as I've said, is not only a matter of the mind. Uh, see, it's also a matter of the heart. As we move to the second section of the psalm, we see that. The worshipers, uh, God's worshipers must worship him from the heart. So verses 3 through 6 here in Psalm 24, to read them again. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Who are God's people? God's people are those who love him. And we must worship God from our hearts. Verse 3 asks a crucial question in two different ways. Again, we see the parallelism here. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Both are references to the special presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant. Essentially, the question is this. Who can come into God's presence to worship him? Do we assume that everyone has a right to come before God, before the Lord, to come into his presence? That anyone can come into his presence and offer him true Worship. The Bible would indicate to us otherwise. There is a basic requirement, which we'll get to in a moment. But first we note that in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic economy, God, access to God was very restricted, his presence. There were layers of access, but ultimately only one man, the high priest, once a year was truly able to enter the presence of God in the most holy place before the ark, before God's special presence, and that only covered by the prescribed blood sacrifice. Why? Well, we see why if we look at verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, that's who can ascend the hill of the Lord. That's who can stand in his holy place. This is a big problem. For as Tremper Longman III says, and I quote, In other words, worshipers who wish to enter the sanctuary must be innocent, both inside and outside. And they must have clean hands and a pure heart. They must be pure inside, and that must be reflected in their lives. And this is a major problem. We all are neither. All have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. No one is qualified in and of themselves to enter into God's presence to offer him right worship. The atoning sacrifice required under the old covenant, of course, pointed to the once-for-all atoning death of Christ on the cross. And we again are confronted with the fact that though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, God in his great mercy has provided a sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ to cover the sins of his people, to allow those whom he has chosen, whom he has called by his grace to come before him and to worship him and to love him from their hearts, to know who he is. And so if you are here today and you are uh, a sinner, uh, you have good company because this is a room full of sinners, right? The difference among us is that not who has sinned and who has not sinned, but it is those who have been covered by the sacrifice of Christ and who stand before God in his righteousness and those who have not. And that access to God comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that no, he is the way and the truth and the life, that no one comes to the Father but through him. What he requires is that we repent, that we turn. See, we are all born, as it were, create a picture. We're all born with our back to God, facing sin, facing the world. And to repent is simply to turn, to change, to turn the direction of our life and to forsake sin and turn toward God and then to embrace Christ. That's faith, to submit ourselves to him, to give our life to him, to repent and believe the good news. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Christ has died in our place to provide access to God through his person, through his sacrifice and through his righteousness. And so in him, God has provided everything that we need, the two basic things that we need. We need forgiveness and we need renewal. We need to have our sin covered. We need God's wrath to be satisfied and that is done through the death of Christ. And then we need renewal. We need, it's wonderful to be forgiven, but we're still sinners. Then we need to be renewed. We are renewed by the coming of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit that seals God's salvation in our hearts. And if you are here today and you're not a Christian, you have not repented of sin, you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that this would be the very day that you would do that. There's nothing to wait for. There's nothing to bring. Simply to turn, to confess your sins and to believe on Christ and to give yourself to him, to submit yourself to him and receive the good, the blessing that God has for you in the gospel. See, only the one who is covered by the blood of Christ and is clothed in his righteousness can worship in God's presence. This is what we are all created to do, every single one of us. God created humanity to be before him as Adam and Eve were and to love him and to worship him and we have forsaken that. And the only way back to that is through Christ. And so, again, if you're not a Christian, we invite you to become one. And therefore, to fulfill what God has created you to be. As long as you are remain outside of Christ, you cannot be what God has created you to be. And for those in Christ, walking in faithful obedience to the Savior, we see that we do have clean hands and a pure heart in him in his perfect righteousness, and in his pure heart before God. And we are reminded of the promise of blessing 
As Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, they shall come into his presence. They shall see him as he is. Purity, not polluted. Embracing God from the heart and rejecting idols, which is what we see here in the parallel in 4b, in verse 4b. For who does, he who has, in the first part, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Does not lift up his soul to what is false. Um, is, we get a little clarity on what this means. If, you're, if you have your Bible, you can just look down at chapter 25, Psalm 25, verse 1, because we have parallel construction there in the very first verse. It says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, and you I trust. So to lift up your soul... God is to trust in him. Again, this fits with the uh, rejecting what is false that we see here in verse 4. That which is false refers probably to false gods. We lift up our soul. We trust in God from the heart for who he is. He is our creator God. And we reject what is false. We reject all those idols, those man-made idols that offer no salvation. But what is false and swear deceitfully are also seem to be parallels here in 4b. And so perhaps the focus is on lying. Uh, There's disagreement in commentaries. The Hebrew is not always super clear for everyone, even for the scholars. Uh, However, at the end of the day, we note that what is false Uh, excuse me, both are condemned as unworthy of those who would enter God's presence. We read in Revelation 21, 8, but as for the, which is the pronouncement that God's full kingdom has come, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Idolatry is a lie. It is inherently a lie, and it compounds that lie by denying God, which is another lie. So to be an idolater is essentially to be a liar. And to be a liar is to be an idolater. Those who are in Christ will not be perfect in this life by any means, but their hearts will be right before God by rejecting the lie of idolatry when they turn to Christ and believe on him. Now, in verse 5, we see parallels again. He will receive blessing. He, this is the one who can ascend the hill of the Lord because he has clean hands and pure heart, lifted up his soul. As we have seen, that is one uh, who is in Christ and who has trusted in God. And so he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And we see here the link between faith, between trusting in God and trusting in the Lord and rejecting false gods and righteousness, the righteousness that comes by faith. For as Habakkuk 2.4 says, the righteous shall live by faith, a key verse in the Bible that is thrice repeated in the New Testament. It was true then, it's true now, and it will always be true. And then in verse 6, moving along, we read, 
Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And I want to spend a little time, more time on this verse. It gets important here. Those who seek him, we read, this is the first seek. You notice that the word seek occurs in both of the two uh, parallels within verse 6 of the two lines. This first seek, those who seek him, could also be understood to mean follow or worship. It refers to those who are devoted to God, those walking in faithfulness and repentance. This is not describing fair-weather fans who love God for what they are getting, but abandon him when suffering, trial, or loss come. And then in B, there's another seek. And this seek is a different Hebrew word. It means to search out more of what we might think in English of seek, meaning to search out. Interestingly, the Hebrew text does not include God there. It just says, seek the face of Jacob. Though the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament a couple centuries before the time of Christ, adds God there, and many English translations follow that, as it does seem implied. The ESV does, and perhaps if you have a different version, it does as well. Literally, again, this says, seek the face of Jacob. What seems to be going on here, whether we would insert the word God there or not, it seems to be clearly alluding to Genesis chapter 32 and a particular episode in Jacob's life. And so just briefly to give background to that, for not all of us may be familiar, and this would be review for many, but Jacob uh, was a twin brother. He was the younger brother of uh, twins, his brother Esau. Uh, Isaac was their father, and of course, Isaac's father was Abraham. And so uh, Esau, being the elder son, was due to receive the blessing from Isaac. And this was a special blessing because God had made promises to Abraham that then had passed to Isaac and then presumably would pass to the eldest son, which would be Esau. But Jacob, with his mother's help, uh, deceived his father Isaac and essentially stole the blessing from Esau. And, the, and there's a lot more to this story that I won't get into. Esau's not a vi- per se a victim here, but as many of us know. But anyway, um, and this, therefore, Esau loathed Jacob, and Jacob had to flee, literally flee for his life. He ran and lived with his mother's family, ultimately for 20 years. Got married twice, had children, acquired property, and then there he learned what it was like to be deceived. He got a taste of his own medicine, and it was finally time to leave, so he went to leave to go back to his homeland. But Esau is still alive. And so Jacob is heading back to his homeland, and word comes back to him uh, on the road that Esau is coming toward him with 400 men. It appears that he is in a warlike mode, and he is about to finally get his revenge on Jacob. And so Jacob is in fear for his life. He is fearful for his family. He is fearful uh, for, to lose everything. But he reminds the Lord in chapter 12 of verse 32, in Genesis 32, he reminds the Lord of a promise that he had given to Jacob. He says, but you said, Jacob's saying to God, he says, you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And then they cross a the river there, and we are told 
picking up in Genesis chapter 32, verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And we see common themes here in Genesis 32 with what we read in Psalm 24, 6. We see Jacob, we see the face of God, we see blessing, righteousness, and there is salvation or deliverance, which is the same concept. See, God visits Jacob, a man, we're told. But somehow Jacob recognizes that this is God, that he has seen God to face to face. This is probably what we would call a theophany, which is a, a appearance of Christ before the incarnation. Uh, that God himself was present there with Jacob. And the key here is that Jacob says in verse 26, he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me or until you bless me. And the question for us that I would like to ask us, are we willing to wrestle with God? See, we are all prone to trials, temptations, doubts, and fears. Maybe we haven't been in as big a mess as Jacob was in, but we have all dealt with things. We have all, again, been, we've been in situations of trial and temptations, of doubts, of fears. Uh, there's nothing unique about those. All that's unique maybe is our particular circumstance, our particular fear, our particular trial. But this is the common lot of not just humanity, but of Christians. And the question then is, do we pull back from God in this? Or do we lean in and lay hold of him and refuse to let go until he blesses us? Refuse to let go until he gives us his assurance. And the issue is love. See, we don't pull back from someone that we really love in life. We know that from human relationships, right? When we really love someone, when there's conflict, we lean into that. We want to resolve it. We are determined to resolve it. When we don't understand, we lean into the relationship and we are determined to resolve it. If we don't, it's an indication that we don't love enough. And so we must lean in to God. When we don't understand, when we are struggling, when we just can't fathom what he's up to, when we have doubts. And the relational aspect of all this comes through in Psalm 24's use of the name of God. So six times, well, I should say seven times, there is a reference to God in Psalm 24. Eight if you count the second part of verse six, which we talked about inserting the word God there. Uh, six of them use the covenant name of God to Israel. Yahweh. Only one is the other, which is Elohim, which speaks to God's power. Six of the seven times 
God's covenant name, his relational name with his people is used. This is because of God's heart for his people and the heart that his people are to have for him. See, we cannot expect any blessing from one from whom we retreat. God has covenanted with us in Christ. God has given us all that we need. He has loved us, and he leans into us, as it were. He meets us where we are and gives with what we need. We cannot expect any blessing from him if we pull back and we retreat from him, even as Christians. And that includes retreating from his people, from his church. See, again, we are all faced at various times with trials, temptations, doubts, and fears. This is the common lot of all of us. But if you feel like God has dealt you a tough hand and that life feels difficult and God feels distant, you feel like you're losing your life, as it were, there's a simple solution. Give that life away in service to God and his people. The one who wrestled with Jacob, if we understand that that was a uh, a theophany of Christ back there with Jacob in Genesis 32, the one who wrestled with Jacob and blessed him, says in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or as the Apostle Paul said, that he did not consider his life dear to himself. And we see the same pattern when Jacob, when he was humbled and he was brought low and feared for his life, then he was willing to give himself to God, to wrestle with him and to seek his blessing. See, being a Christian is not easy but it's not supposed to be easy. If it were easy, we would never learn that God's grace is sufficient. When we give our life to Christ, we gain life in him and give him the glory for it. We don't learn that on the easy road. We only learn that on the hard road. Remember, in this life, the Lord is preparing his people to worship him. And we worship him now, and it's real, but it's going to be so much better. It's going to be so much more full when we are in his presence when faith becomes sight. His people are to worship him from their hearts, the very center of their being. Let us do that. And here, as we turn to the final section of the psalm, verses 7 through 10, I'll read again. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. We see here again to ask the question, why do God's people worship him? Why do we worship him? Because God's people have been saved, because he has done something for us. He has redeemed us. And we must worship God with praise for what he has done. What is described here in verses 7 through 10 is probably interplay between two speakers, probably priests. Remember again the context. It's a liturgical hymn in Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is coming into Jerusalem. Uh, There is probably a priest at the head of that procession. And there is another priest who is at the head of the, 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 the gates to the city. And first the one uh, entering declares that the king of glory is ready to enter. And the second asks, well, who is this king of glory? And the first replies with a description 
praising God. Of course, the question uh, that's asked by the second is what we call the rhetorical question, right? He knows full well, but he wants to hear. He wants to give opportunity for the praise of God's people. And so lifting up in verse 7, again, we see the parallelism. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. To lift up has a symbolic meaning. It's an exaltation to lift up. And of course, uh, the time would come when uh, the temple would be built and it would be built at the high place where wherever you were in Jerusalem, you would look up because God is exalted. You would look up to where his presence was. Uh, it is not a literal depiction of the gates of the doors being thrown up. They would have been thrown out uh, to allow entry. But again, it's symbolic. Lifting up refers to exaltation and it refers to honor. We give honor and glory when we lift up. And the king of glory, described here, glory means to be worthy of honor, to have abundance. God has provided abundance for his people. He has delivered his people here. The, the ark is probably coming in as at the head of the victorious Israelite army. They are celebrating God's presence in their midst and the deliverance, the salvation that he has given to them. As we see in verse 8, who is this king of glory? How is he described? He's the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And in verse 8, excuse me, verse 10, no, I'm sorry, never mind. Yes, in verse 10, the Lord of hosts, uh, which again refers to the, the host. He is at the command of a great army. See, the Lord who created the earth in verse 1 is now proclaimed as a victorious deliverer, a savior, as it were. Verses 9 and 10 essentially repeat what is said in verses 7 and 8. Again, twice is asked the question, who is this king of glory? And both times the answer comes back that he is essentially a victorious warrior, that he has conquered his enemies for his people. Hebrews 13, verses 14 and 15 tells us, for here we have... No lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. See, the Jerusalem of Psalm 24, for the place and circumstances for which this psalm was originally written, this liturgical psalm was written, was temporary. But a new Jerusalem is coming, and that's our city. The Jerusalem that is above, as Paul describes it in Galatians, or the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven in Revelation 21. And can you imagine how much more we as God's people will proclaim God's praise when Christ returns triumphant? God is preparing us now to honor him then when he will receive greater glory than what we see here in Psalm 24. See, Christ has defeated all of his enemies and one day, they will be vanquished. They will be removed forever. No more to produce trial or temptation, doubt or fear among God's people. Sin will be gone. Satan will be gone. And even the last and greatest enemy, death. One day, our minds will be fully renewed. Our hearts will be completely purified. And I hope that even the least of us will have voices that are strong and true. I'm really hoping that myself.
God is preparing us to worship him on the day of Christ's return beyond anything we have experienced. We praise him now. We give him glory now. We honor him now and worship him now. But oh, the day is coming uh, when we will look back and think, we've been, we've been training for this day. Like that Jewish girl, all God's people will fall on our knees in worship and sing his praise. And again, we will all be able to look back and see all how God has worked in our lives to shape our minds, to shape our hearts, to give him the praise that he deserves. And so, as we conclude, may we grow, now grow, in our knowledge of his truth. We need to be growing day by day. And may we now grow in our love for his person, for who he is and what he has done. Again, day by day. And may we now grow in our desire to offer sacrifices of praise to his glory. These are the sacrifices uh, that we, again, in Hebrews, we are told to give to God. Sacrifices of praise, to continually offer them up as we wait for that day. God, the Lord God, has created a people to worship him. He's redeemed us to worship him because we had fallen and not worshipped him as his creatures, as his redeemed people. Let us do just that. Let's pray. Lord, you indeed are the king of glory. You are triumphant. You and you alone are worthy of our honor and our praise, for you alone are glorious. You have provided salvation for your people. You have delivered us from all our enemies, even death, Lord. We need not fear. And you have provided an abundance. We know that We'll be ex the goodness that we experience in this life in Christ is but uh, a shadow of the things to come, Lord. We look forward to that day. Just prepare us now, Lord. Prepare our hearts to worship you as we continue in this service, Lord, to come before you uh, in the, with the right mind and the right heart, Lord, with a desire to lift you high and to honor you above all else. All right. Amen.